Hi, my friends who listen to Future Primitive. I'm absolutely thrilled today to be with author Stephen Harrod Buhner. He is a senior researcher for the Foundation of Guyan Studies, described as both earth poet and bardic naturalist. He is the award-winning author of 19 books including The Lost Language of Plants, The Sacred Teaching of Plants, and Sacred Plant Medicine. Before retiring from the road in 2013, he taught for more than 30 years throughout North America and Europe. He lives in Silver City, New Mexico. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Joanna. Thanks for having me on today. I was wondering if um, there was uh, some things you would like to add about what you've been uh, you've been plunged into since two thousand thirteen. Well, yeah, I've actually written a few more books than that. I think I'm up to twenty three or twenty four now, <laughs> okay. and. I've been looking a lot deeper at, um, I don't know how to say this, the sort of two things. I've been writing over the years sort of uh, uh, medical herbalism thread or what I consider to be ecological medicine for the treatment of disease and also this other thread which started with sacred plant medicine and then went through most recently to plant intelligence in the imaginal realm, which was sort of the magnum opus of that thread, but which has now sort of developed into a new book, a portion of which was published late last year called uh, Becoming Vegetalista. So these, and now I'm also working on a book on uh, the treatment of COPD or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And, Sort of the interesting thing is those two threads seem to be kind of coming together as one unified thing, which I was sort of surprised at. So that's taking up a lot of time as well as I've been spending the last few years becoming an elder, which I find actually harder than adolescence <laughs> um, because of the demands on the self. And it's not like... Like when you go through adolescence, which is really difficult, yeah, you know, you still got all this vitality, and then you can continually think of, oh, you know, what do I want to do, you know, when I grow up? But when you go through eldering, the process is just as hard. Only there's not that future capacity to look forward to. So there's a lot of interior reflection on endings and primary shifts in the structure of life. And so those are the, the sort of things that I've been up to the last six years or so. I, I agree with you about um, 
about becoming an elder, and uh, I, I'm a little, I'm a little further down the line, and I'll say, and and so each day becomes a bigger treasure, but a difficult treasure. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's, I think that's well put. I'm uh, with I mean, you. There's so many, in the way I think Robert Bly, um, there's very few people that write about eldering. Most people write about growing old, mm-hmm. which is not really the same thing. And I find eldering to be a much more demanding process rather than just you know, becoming an old man yelling at clouds or telling kids to get off my lawn, which is a whole, that's growing old, not really elderly. But Robert Bly said, when you become an elder, you live with, you know, you enter the, the territory of grief and you live with one foot in the land of the dead and one foot in the land of the living. And it's a very, really, truly a very different territory, which I think, has a lot to do with the kind of times we find ourselves in because we're in a um, time of a major paradigm shift from a very one way of thinking which has led us to the way that the world's ecosystems are now and another way of thinking which is struggling to come into being. And um, paradigm shifts are always very destabilizing and I really moving into elder, it's a very destabilizing time because we pass from one age of life into another one where there's very different perceptions, a very different way of seeing the world, a very different way of being and living, and not much support for it in the American culture, actually. So, Yeah, actively living and dying at the same time as... I try to be as as aware of that as I can every single day. Well, that's really well put. Thank you. Thank you. So my my co-eldering, would you speak more about what you you perceive and feel about the the times we are in. I know it's wide, but but it's so crucial at the moment. Well, it's, uh, you know, the last five or six years I've been parsing a lot of very um, subtle concepts, I guess, is one way to talk about it. And from having read my books, you know that, that I've spent a, a long time doing that and my work to parse the nature of meanings. We spend so little time in America in our interior world. I mean, we can describe, our culture can describe, you know, minutiae from the physical world, you know, extremely well, and we've broken things apart into these little tiny things that we talk about, you know, as if there's, you know, crucial importance. But when it comes to our interior world and the journey that we make as human beings, our soul's journey, there's very little awareness or or sophistication with it. You know, the word love we use for broccoli as well as our children, you know, and there's just all kinds of things we just really never notice. I mean, just the way a room feels when we walk into it. 
uh, the way a restaurant feels when we walk into it, or just really what does it mean to have a close friendship? I mean, the word friend applies to everything from, you know, just bare acquaintances sometimes to incredibly close intimates. So, you know, this time that we're in, there's a lot of shift of, of our orientation, of our human orientation, our cultural orientation toward our lives, toward our cultures, toward the earth itself. And so, you know, I've been spending a lot of time really thinking about that. And one of the things is really the difference between hope and optimism. And, you know, most people confuse those two terms. To be hopeful for most people means to be optimistic. But one of the things that happens during the eldering process, I think, is where the distinction of those two terms comes into play because, you know, working with this for a long time, it finally occurred to me that hope is a kind of faith in life itself, in the earth itself, mm-hmm. whereas optimism is a belief or a wish that things will turn out the way one wishes. Yes. And in a lot of ways, at the time we're in now, we don't really have a lot of room for optimism, and by that I mean we don't really have the time to waste being optimistic anymore because we're in a hell of a fix, which everybody knows. And so to find some way through that as the old paradigm gives way and all of the things built up around it begin to biodegrade, so to speak, we need to find some other way through rather than optimism, but to understand the nature of hope, I think, makes a huge difference. And I think that's really one of our duties as elders is to understand the distinction and begin to embody hope in just the way we live in the world. Because it, when I encounter it, which I don't very often, um, there's almost like a medicine in it to be around somebody that understands what hope is and embodies that in themselves to understand that nature of that kind of faith. Let me ask you this. Is hope living every day in the awareness that uh, uh, I am doing the best I can to ensure whatever possible future by my actions and and my words and and falling about it all the time, but doing that, being in. I think it has a, there's a relationship uh, between what you're saying and what hope is. And the first time I had sort of a, a sense of what hope was, though that word wasn't used, in the in the dynamic that I saw was a woman interviewing Jacques Cousteau years ago. Uh-huh. It must be 30, 35 years ago, 40 years ago maybe. And it was a, some, you know, TV uh, thing that I'd seen. And so he was talking about how the Mediterranean had been when he was growing up. And then he comes back years later, and the Mediterranean is basically a desert, and most of the life is gone from it, and that was sort of the 
moment that he decided to create the Cousteau Society and begin to work in the way he did. And so he talks about that a little bit, and then the woman interviewer says, well, do you think that you'll win? And he looked at her <laughs> in shock with this kind of magnificent Gallic expression, you know, on her face, and he pauses a minute, and then he goes, and almost this kind of outrage or surprise in his voice, he says, one doesn't do it because one thinks one will win. One mm-hmm. does it because one must. <laughs> yes. And to me, that kind of illustrates the difference. Optimism is believing in the outcome or wishing yeah. for a certain outcome. But, but when you move into the hope dynamic, it's more sort of like what... Um, uh, Gandhi said when he yeah. said the step and the destination are the same thing that if you take the right first step the destination is already inherent in it and so it's knowing the truth of that and moving through the world that way so you're doing this work that you've called to, to do this mm-hmm. whole work that you mm-hmm. you're doing but part of the thing that happens when, as we elder, is the intimate relationship with the death that occurs and with endings and knowing how transitory everything is, even ecological systems that might have been around for 10 or 20 or 30,000 years or civilizations that have been around a long time, that there's a transitory nature to it. And so... It moves to, we each find the place where one way of saying it would be where our true chance of greatness lies or where the work that we do most expresses who we are as an enfold being. And we do that work simply because it's in us to do it, because we love, because we care, because not only for the exterior world, but that we care for ourselves and the maintenance of our own soul health to do what's in us to do. And we do that in the recognition of how little what we can do will accomplish in terms of an optimistic frame of mind. I mean, in one sense, looking at an individual trying to change the world, which is a foolish concept, but one which all of us go through for quite often many years when we're younger, it's like trying to turn the Titanic from its the way it's going using a plastic straw as the rudder. (sighs) You just you can't see it. It's it makes an impact, but it's so tiny, and so. That's why more and more I've gotten to the place of believing in the the genius of millions of people doing the thing that they're called to do. And none of us can really know the impact that our thing is going to make, whatever it is. I mean, some people like Black Elk, though, oh, well, a holy man, he died in 1950. Mm-hmm. But Black Elk Speaks is one of the greatest books ever written by an animist 
visionary, and it wasn't until the mid-60s that that book was discovered for what it was and became such a massive influence, and he was long dead by then, of course. <laughs> so there's a, that's another aspect of understanding the faith that hope is, I think. And it's a hard distinction for people in their 20s and their 40s, even their 50s, to really get. That's why I think part of the function of elders is to hold this kind of awareness and live from it. Because that, I don't know, it sort of keeps up the goodwill in the younger people, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, you have a you have a beautiful phrase which is uh, about the individual individuals joining action with others motivated by their individuated intuition. Right, and uh, I mean, there's a, one of the predominant aspects of the old paradigm, which is passing away. I mean, one of the ways you can describe it is maybe a reductionistic, mechanicalistic approach to life, um, where there's this belief that the wildness of nature can be controlled. One of its primary beliefs sort of woven into its fabric is that top-down approaches to things actually work, but they don't really work. And that's becoming more and more clear as that old paradigm begins to fracture. I mean, pretty much every behavior that it, that paradigm has instituted, every sort of invention or whatever that they've created from that sort of top-down controlling perspective has had massive and continues to have massive side effects that they never even considered, sometimes very obvious side effects. I mean, you know, basically, if you use uh, synthetic chemical processes to create unlimited amounts of plastic that doesn't biodegrade, it's going to go somewhere. And... You know, so like, I mean, that's not exactly, you don't exactly have to have a, a PhD in physics, uh, you know, to understand something like that. So by looking at the individual genius of millions of human beings in the, the environmental or ecological location in which they're located, that I've seen this over and over the past 35, 40 years, that when a human being we feel certain things. We feel an urgency about something that needs to be addressed. And, you know, and then somehow we have a certain affinity. I mean, maybe we see 10 or 20 things that need to be addressed, but there's going to be a certain affinity that we have for a few of them over the, all of the others. And somehow that affinity that we have for it our individual genius is perfectly designed. Our background, our upbringing, our stubbornness, our flights of fancy or imagination, those things all sort of connect with those things that we're most drawn to, and it's where we can make the biggest difference. I mean, I can't, no single person can solve all of the thousands of problems 
facing us, and if we try to do so, it will destroy us. You can't be a social justice activist for, you know, the thousand things that are plaguing the human and, you know, natural world. And so, you know, I found, as I think most of us do over time, that we need to focus on just the few areas where our genius has the greatest sort of joy and impact and natural affinity. And um, and one of the things that really brings me a lot of joy and happiness is every time I see somebody else, it doesn't matter what age they are, <laughs> doing something and I can get, there's a certain friction, a certain feeling when somebody's really got a hold of the soul work that they're meant to do and they they have, there's always a childlike joy to it and this excitement of mind and discovery, and they're creating things quite often that have never been done before in the world, and you can just feel it. And I feel excited because, you know, I can't do that. It's not where my work lies, but when you just then expand that out and realize that there's millions upon millions of people all around the globe that are doing that thing, that have realized that build systems, they're not reformable, they're not fixable because they're based on assumptions that are so fundamentally inaccurate to the real world that even if you try to rearrange, it's like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. So <laughs> people that are coming out of these sort of newer paradigms that they feel in the depths of the self, that brings me a lot of joy. And if there is any optimism that I have anymore, it really comes from seeing that, experiencing that, and all of these young people that whose job is to carry the work on and see the human species in the earth through this tremendously challenging time and this paradigm shift. So let me ask you this. After concentrating for a really long time on intimacy with Gaia, with, uh, with the non-human world, when you take a walk in the forest, what do you perceive? What do you see? You know, that's an interesting question because when I was young, I would hear people say things like, uh, I've learned so much that I know how little I know. Mm -hmm. And I would think, that's the craziest thing I ever heard. You know, <laughs> I was like 17 hearing that. You know, and I was like, you know, and I was having access to some of the world's greatest libraries, you know, before the Internet. I'd walk right. in and feel all of that wisdom and knowledge surrounding me and the smell that it had, you know, in a library. And I yeah. think, that's impossible, you know. But now that's pretty much the place I'm in, that I live now in a constant state where, where I'm constantly aware of the level of my ignorance about things and how little I really know. So when I, and I've lived as often as I can and spent, as much time as I could in wild ecosystems much of my life. So there's a place I go now to walk. We have a, I live in Silver City, but we have a small cabin up in the, right on the edge of the Tila Wilderness, uh -huh. which is one of the oldest, largest wilderness areas. And, and I often go for walks 
and there's a certain area where I go for about a three mile walk every every few days. And when I walk in there, what I'm aware of is how it's going about its business mm-hmm. in this most delightful of ways. Mm-hmm. And um, I used to be very interested in gathering, I guess, uh, information about the world and a lot through a lot of different kind of mechanisms where I could um, write books about it or talk about it or use it in my own meditative work for me. But for me, the and a lot of people talk about finding a spiritual teacher or um, doing ayahuasca ceremonies or all different kinds of things. But for me, the the plants have always been my primary teachers, both intellectual and spiritual, um, emotional, psychological. They've been the gurus, so to speak, that I've sat with for most of my life. And, you know, when, uh, oh, my brain is so old, I forget <laughs> the poet who said, uh, Basho, with Basho, Basho, who said, if you want to understand the pine, go to the pine. If you want to understand the bamboo, go to the bamboo. And that's been this thing I've done for a long time. So I've, I just go now with a sort of agreeableness of emotional openness and walk. And we share, it's like walking with a friend that you've known for many, many, many years where you don't have to say very much to each other. And then every so often one of you drops a comment into the silence and it reverberates inside you and then maybe you make a response. So I, you know, I'm trying to understand, for instance, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which Mm -hmm. I have a really early um, stage of that. Um, And so I go and walk and there's this really remarkable place that I found with an oak tree that's probably 150 years old and then there's a a ponderosa pine next to it approximately the same age and what's fascinating is that for whatever reason the oak tree grew this sort of forked branch that went on either side of the ponderosa pine and over time the two trees have grown into each other so that they're actually sharing their um, nutrients are flowing from one to the other and back and forth. So you've got this sort of hybrid genus dynamic that's happening that, of course, scientists have said is impossible. (laughs) And, of course, the medicine of both trees is very changed because the you know, constituents are flowing back and forth through the inner bark, and uh, it's kind of fascinating, and they have this marvelous feeling to them, and I sit there, one of the places I stop and sit every time that I um, travel up there, and so I was really stuck. I'd been reading a whole lot about COPD, and as usual, most of the scientific papers didn't make any sense. I was about, you know, four or five hundred journals into it, and so I knew I was missing something important, so I would go and sit there, and I would just talk to the forest about what I was working on, you know. Uh And I was sitting there one day, and then 
you know, the oak tree. And, of course, this doesn't happen in human language or the way we think about it. I've written about this many times, but I'm sitting there talking to that oak, particular oak tree and going, you know, I'm just not getting it. You know, there's really something I'm missing, and I can't go any further. And all of a sudden, from the oak tree just comes this sort of communication of meaning, which I translate into language inside me so I can encapsulated his memory, and it just says, oh, well, the thing he's missed is that the human lungs are just a modification of plant stomata. <sighs> so that one thing changed everything. It opened up this massively sophisticated understanding of the human lungs and why, for instance, that COPD is rising more and more all the time, even though smoking levels are decreasing. Why only about 25% of people who smoke get lung diseases, you know, and just this whole world that just sort of opened up in this immediate thing, and so, which is in and of itself an incredibly long story, so I won't go down that road, but the thing is, in the old days, people understood that you could take your problems to the world, to the forest, and ask for mm-hmm. help. And there's, it was understood that there were intelligences and presences there that would respond to us and help us when we were in need. And, you know, about, I guess, seven or eight years ago, when I was doing that, I was asked to basically not unless I was really ill for some reason, to not really harvest plants for medicine, not to really look at the plants as medicine anymore, but to begin to do something else, to engage in this sort of convivial companionship where neither really asks for much from the other, but just let stuff emerge of its own accord. And that represents, I think, more of the the humbleness that begins to come in the eldering process, that it's not so much what nature can do for us, but just simply we sit on the front porch of our lives together, you know, and occasionally share things with each other. And somehow in that, we become more ourselves in the way that we're supposed to be. And as, you know, my partner, Julie McIntyre, once said, she said, you have to remember, it's their journey, too, that a human being who can respond with that kind of agreeableness and lack of hubris, it makes them happy. And they each get something from the other. And that's a lot of what my days are like these days. Mm. Okay, that's beautiful. <laughs> I I would like to ask you if uh, you would talk to us and I should say to me about the evolution uh, you speak so beautifully about the time you were at a Grateful Dead concert and... Uh, You looked, you and the person who turned you on, looked deeply into each other. And um, I I felt every moment of what you wrote 
as it is my own experience. I wonder if you would be willing to talk about how that has composted within you. Uh, composting, that's a good word for it. You know that, I mean, that's really the whole kind of focus of the sequel to Plant Intelligence in the imaginal realm that I'm working on, which is called Becoming Vegetalista. Uh-huh. Vegetalista is a bad Spanish um, translation, I guess, of a quechua term from South America, which I can't pronounce or in I at all, but it's that term vegetalista. I really uh, more than any other term I've ever heard it. Um, I felt this kind of emotional friction, almost goosebumps from it, where it uh-huh. captured this journey I've been on the last fifty years and. For me, you know, it was being, you know, the the 1960s saved my life. And, of course, uh, you know, psychedelic drugs showed me that there was a possibility of life after birth, which my family had definitely not shown me that. So, (laughs) but in that moment where I met this really remarkable man, and it was just one of those moments where time seemed to stop, and then he was going through the crowd giving out LSD to mm-hmm. uh, people. And I'd taken it many times before, and I took it uh, some afterwards, but I'd never had, you know, very powerful visionary experiences on LSD. Most people don't um, have powerful visionary experiences when they take um, psychotropics. Um, but ayahuasca is sort of the herb of the day now that people are using to sort of pursue that. But for me, in that moment, you know, my entire life work became, was sort of just emerged out of the substance, substance of the world for me. And that, um, you know, LSD is, it's taken me, time to understand, but that it's really, what it is, is it's a a semi-synthetic generated out of a mushroom. And that exact same mushroom was used um, during the Eleusinian Mysteries to make the kakion that people drank you know, millions of people. Uh, Lucius, the town, is not that far from Athens. I don't think it's a surprise then that Athens became this place where all of this great thought and insight occurred. But it had been, you know, several... Uh, it was outlawed in, in about, oh, I forget, 500 or something. So it was, you know, 1,500 years later or so yes. before... Albert Hoffman released it back from the darkness in which it had been cast out. But in any event, that, all of my life has really been about following the, I would say, the spiritual imperatives that were given to me then, the, uh, because there was these massive amount of insights that had taken me much of a lifetime to unlock and parse into pieces. All my books are really a story of that journey of 
how to bring it into conscious awareness and be able to embody it and live it and then develop it as the work in the world that I'm meant to do, much like that's why Black Elk's book was so meaningful to me because it's the the most comprehensive description of a visionary episode uh, that's ever been written. And um, uh, all of us have that capacity. All of us have visions all of the time, though we don't think of it that way. Um, but in the 50 years of work, it's a matter of trying to find each step, each piece that I needed to bring into the world. And of course, it's not a surprise that my focus became plant since it was uh, a mushroom derivative that began the whole thing. But the whole focus has been on the livingness of the ecosystem of the earth, of Gaia, of the intelligence and communicability of plants, and um, really what a tiny part that human beings play in all of that. I mean, we have our own unique function, but we're not really that important in the scheme of things. And, you know, part of the function of the work, too, has been that there's people all over the world that have visionary experiences like that, only within the sort of monotheistic, reductionist um, mindset of the Western world, those visionary experiences are shamed or oppressed or medicated or, you know, defined mm-hmm. in these ways that because the major question everybody has is they always think that they're crazy because these things happen and you know it's like even I wrote in Lost Language of Plants about I was teaching and there were these three women who had come and one of them you know was from Jamaica and you know she said you know every night my grandmama she come to me in my dreams and she said child you got to get your fingers in the dirt <laughs> and you know, the woman had told me, she said she was very depressed. She didn't really, really live anymore, thinking about suicide a lot. And then these dreams started to come. And then she lives in New York City, and but she found a community garden. And she says, and you know, Manda, when I get my fingers in the dirt, I, I know who I am again. And such a thing has never happened to me before. I think uh, I come today because maybe I think I'm crazy. You know, and... I have heard stories like that, hundreds if not thousands of stories like that from people who have written me or attended my workshops over the years. You know, you wouldn't exactly put this in the same category as a great vision that's going to, you know, change the entire world, but it changes her world. And, you know, the fact that this is the first, what's true, this is the first time in the history of human habitation of Earth that anybody would think that their grandmama coming to them in their dreams to help them when they were in soul difficulty this is the first time anybody ever any culture would think it was crazy. Mm. And this dimension of human life, this isolation of us from the rest of the the livingness of the world and the caring that's there for us, you know, that... There's a reason why most people in the Western world are either on antidepressants or thinking about taking them, you know. And so what she experienced was a tiny visionary experience. And all of the women there that had come that day had their own 
visionary experience that had brought them to that class where I was teaching about sacred plant medicine. And those stories are not uncommon. They're very common. Mm-hmm. And even most scientists have visionary experience, though they'll never talk about it that way. They'll be struggling with some problem all of a sudden into their mind. They'll move into this sort of dream state and have this sort of visionary moment where the whole thing becomes clear. But they didn't get there through reductive perspectives. And it's much clearer as time goes on that the universe is fundamentally animist. It's not a monotheistic construct that everything has soul and intelligence, aliveness, awareness, communicability. And our movement away from that, the denying of individual capacity and intelligence to everything else in the world, is the root of our illness that's led to where we are. I mean, as Gregory Bateson said, he said it's an epistemological mistake, an error that is more severe than all of the errors that belong to all of the systems prior to the emergence of this one. And so, you know, my life has been really about a restoration of that rightness of of people's re-inhabiting their inner being with the world and just being one part of the kin that's on this planet. And, you know, I've never really been able to do anything else in those visionary episodes. It's just simply um, what I was told, what I was shown, what was revealed. And there was also this demand to blend. In a way, I think that's the unique challenge of our time, to blend the indigenous heart, the capacity for thinking through the heart, the intelligence of the feeling self with the capacity of mind that's been developed by the sort of rationalist world for all of these centuries. And there's a kind of a unique blend of systems that comes into being that's much more than the sum of the parts. And I don't know, I sort of think that's the task before us right now, really, to not be deceived by the rational mind, but also not be lost in um, just sort of an undifferentiated feeling world that we have the best of both blended together. Well, I I just want to thank you so much for um, giving us such a such a sweet riff and uh, just ask you Stephen Harrod Buna if you would like to add a few words in closing and then we'll go our own ways (laughs) yeah well I think one of the things that I mean one of the things I've been spending the last five or six years with really deeply is I don't think that there's anybody that's alive now in maybe the whole entire world. Maybe there's a few pockets where people are so isolated that they don't know, but I think everybody pretty much feels there's something awry with our world now and that we're in for difficult times. And 
you know, I see this a lot where, you know, activists of, of any sort, it doesn't really matter where they fall on the political spectrum, but they all seem to be seizing on this one thing, you know, that they think will be the answer, you know, to everything. If only everybody does this, then we'll all be safe again. We'll all be happy again. The world will work again, and nothing bad will ever happen, you know. But I also spent the last five years reading extensively at history from ancient Greece all the way up through, and that you know kind of belief never really seems to work out. So there's this thing that as human beings we are being forced to face now that none of us really want to. There's a you know, kind of a, a grief, a despair, a depression that's mm-hmm. emerging into the human community and a, almost a kind of a hopelessness, really, and a lot of rage in response to all of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the one of the things that I think is incumbent on those of us who elder, I think it's, we can't really avoid it, is you know, for me, depression has always been the way that the universe makes the darkness visible to us, and that we always think, I mean, Robert Bly has this great metaphor for it from his farm in in, uh, Minnesota, which was, you know, he would come into the barn and he would see birds, and we've all seen this, a bird gets into the house, and you know, and it would be the bird would be up in the peak of the roof trying to get out through these little cracks between the boards and it you know, they could never figure it out and, you know, he would find the birds later dead on the floor and mm-hmm. stuff. So there's no way you can get a bird in a two story barn <laughs> out of the barn. Mm-hmm. But then as he went to pick them up he would notice that there were these, you know, down low against the floor that rats had gnawed through the boards. And there was a way out, but the way out was in darkness. And I always thought it was one of the most marvelous metaphors that, you know, and he would say, we grow our wings on the way down, which is, you know, counterintuitive in a sense, but that the way back to the light is always through darkness. In that sense, we have to be willing to move, to turn and face the darkness, to ask it, what it is that it's trying to tell us, what we are meant to learn from it. And, you know, in a sense, we we have to do to develop a kind of an ontological flexibility to move into different frames of reference, very alien to the way we normally think, and to let go of a lot of things that don't really work and move to go downward, to work on growing our wings, to go through that dark place, to enter the depression, to really look at things that maybe we've never really looked at in our whole life. And then in the process of that, we change. I mean, that's the thing about it. It's almost like as if we become a seed and we've intentionally planted ourselves in dark soil and then something begins to germinate and grow from that in that dark loam of the self and that depression, and then all of a sudden, you know, we grow upward into the light again, but um, it's not because we actually think we're controlling the outcome. And I think 
so many people now are struggling with that exact process. And mm -hmm. most of us in the beginning and maybe all of our lives, we remain like the birds fluttering up against those tiny cracks in the boards trying to get back to the light, to the way we felt before, but that there isn't any way out by doing that. And so we have to have the courage to uh, turn away from our natural inclination and go a different way um, and follow the people that have gone before us, you know, that said, you know, we begin with this intentional decision to enter the dark, but what we find on the other side is life itself. Thank you, my friend, for everything you've given us today. Thank you, Joanna. It was really sweet of you to ask me to be on again. <laughs> <laughs>